Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctor in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. On today's episode, we have Dr. Christine Sterling, and she is a board-certified OBGYN and founder of Sterling Parents, which is a membership that provides the heartfelt support, expert advice, and timeless wisdom people deserve as they grow their families. After becoming a mother herself, she discovered firsthand how to support Western medicine offers to women moving through life-altering transition into motherhood. Now she's a mom on the mission dedicated to ensuring women get the maternal care and support they deserve. She has developed a signature body, mind, and heart model of care, combining cutting-edge science and ancient wisdom with her years of patient care, thousands of births, and long-standing meditation practice. Wow. Dr. Sterling, thank you so much for being here today. (laughs) Oh, it's an honor. I'm so excited to talk to you. So Dr. Sterling, we're going to go ahead and get started because I know you have so much advice and expertise in the world of pregnancy wellness. And I know there's probably so many questions out there that you get asked on a regular basis. And I know you offer pretty regular free classes, you know, through your um, Instagram and, you know, through your website. I know you promote those things, but I hope you can give a little bit of insight today on just, you know, everyone's pregnancy is different. Obviously, you know that with all of your years of experience, but what are some general things someone can do to have a healthy pregnancy and overall pregnancy wellness. I know you just had one recently with your three top tips and you don't have to actually share those if you don't want to share those per se, but what are some some advice you can give someone? Well, what I would say, what I think is really important is we need to shift the way we think about health and pregnancy. So the way, particularly in America, we really, we focus on pregnancy health is it's very consumption-based. So eat this, don't eat this. Um, we're really worried about the things that we we put into bo- our body. And, you know, it's almost as if that's the most important thing for pregnancy health. You know, right. everybody in the United States seems to know that you're not supposed to have soft, you know, um, unpasteurized soft cheeses in pregnancy. And right. I think that's really important. I'm glad that everybody knows that. However, that's because we're trying to avoid something called listeria, which is a, a bacteria. And I have seen one case of listeriosis in pregnancy my entire career. I have, you know, colleagues who've never seen it. It's really, really rare. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting. We really um, focus on this idea of you know, what you consume for pregnancy health. And we really focus on physical things. Um, you know, you go to the the doctor's office and we always check your blood pressure. And, you know, we always um, 
weigh you and it's all about the numbers, right? Right. When the reality is what the, what the data really shows us is that pregnancy wellness and health is really your emotional wellness and your mental health just as important, not only for the health and outcomes of your pregnancy, but for long-term outcomes for our children. So, you know, we talk about blood, you know, blood pressure is something that we always check in pregnancy, but one of the risk factors for blood pressure problems in pregnancy is stress. So I think we need to start looking at are the wellness of the entire person. And we need to also emphasize emotional wellness, which is why I think our pregnant, you know, our approach to pregnancy health being really based on what you do and don't consume and your physical health and, you know, your weight and your numbers doesn't necessarily match with what the data is telling us about. And this is true, not just in pregnancy. This is true health in general, right? You know, there's really no difference between your emotional wellness and your physical wellness. These things interact. And so I, I am all about teaching stress reduction in pregnancy because we see that stress impacts, you know, blood pressure issues, preterm birth, low birth weight. And it also can, um, you know, increase risks of allergies and asthma in children. And then in terms of, you know, we unfortunately see um, some association with, you know, um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, depression, other mental health conditions. So we need to look at the whole person, not just their numbers. Yeah, I well, as you know, as a licensed mental health clinician myself, I 100% agree with that, you know, Um, and even in the classes I teach at the university level, you know, with my students, I say that, you know, a lot of this uh, just um, emotional and mental development starts at conception, you know, because when even the baby could pick up on the the stress that the that the, you know, the mother is carrying, um, you know, those mirror neurons are (laughs) absolutely but you know, even in the womb, I feel like, you know, they if, 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 if we're stressed, you know, the baby's going to be stressed, you know, yeah. and they can pick up on that, that, that activity, you know, whether it's the, the heightened heartbeat or, you know, different things like that. So, yeah. um, so I'm so glad you focus on that. I said, especially, you know, as a, as a therapist myself, I, I love that, um, that it, you know, it is about the physical health, obviously too, you know, yeah. in, in general in life, it should, you know, that's for pregnant or not pregnant. Um, but obviously emotional health, especially after this last year that we've all been through oh that we're goodness, still going yeah. through, um, yes. it's even more prominent, you know, have you seen an increase in that with your business? Um, just with more stressful pregnancies because of the pandemic? 100%. I mean, we are seeing an increased risk. Like studies are showing that there's more, um, uh, depression and anxiety, um, I'm not aware of the literature outside of pregnancy and postpartum, but I would I would venture to sure. guess it's the same outside as well. There's just you know there's just more things to be stressed about, right? There's so many unknowns, and you know we are you start making parenting decisions in pregnancy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's what what level of exposure are you comfortable with, like you know, and dealing with family members has been something that I've seen a lot of people really, really struggle with, you know, even, you know, during their pregnancy with going, you know, family members who aren't vaccinated and who aren't really, you know, taking the pandemic seriously and, and wanting to them to come to their baby shower. It's, it's just, it's nonstop. I mean, there's all of these everyday decisions that have this extra layer of, oh, what about COVID? Right. 
And I mean, I feel, especially as a first-time parent years ago, I mean, I was so paranoid at the beginning when my daughter was first born of anyone coming over to visit, yeah. touching her, picking her up. Be- Rightfully her. so. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, right? at like, you know, Target and some stranger comes up, oh, you have such a cute baby and starts touching her face. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Know, that, that mama bear will come out real quick. <laughs> there's those signs you can get, I think on like Etsy and I'm sure other places Mm -hmm. where it says, you know, hands off my baby, you know, but now with the pandemic, I feel like it's even more so it's heightened, you know, your baby can't wear a face mask. I mean, obviously you can, and you can, your baby can't get vaccinated, you know? So there's, like you said, and you know, it's, um, I I know families, you know, that are actually having people either take a negative COVID test before they visit the baby or, you know, if they're not vaccinated or whatever, and those rules, those extra things in place. You know, <laughs> of course. I mean, truthfully, there there are you know you have to creating boundaries is so important, and and it's something that is really challenging, especially for those of us who, um, you know, were assigned female at birth and who have been socialized as women. Boundaries are a, a challenge yes. because we've really been taught that a a good woman, a good girl you know, doesn't have firm boundaries. And all of a sudden, the pandemic has been, you know, boundaries are front and center for us. And boundaries are front and center pretty much always in pregnancy, because for whatever reason, um, boundaries, especially with strangers, uh, and, you know, acquaintances become more porous in pregnancy, like people think that it's okay to touch your body. It's okay to comment on what your body looks like. It's okay to give advice completely unsolicited or share your horror story completely unsolicited. And so it's, you know, it's a, there's a lot of practice for boundaries right now. Yes, there is. And even just self-care, I mean, going back to the, the mental um, health and pregnancy wellness, I mean, just the act of self-care, the act of saying no, the act of setting boundaries, not putting too much on your plate. Yep you know, to, to keep your sanity, you know, to keep your stress levels down. I know it's something I've been practicing a lot of, and, you know, like I said, pregnant or not, I mean, that's something I think we're all trying to practice right now because when we were all stuck at home and there was nowhere to go, it seemed like, you know, everyone had this new kind of aha moment of, oh, this is what life's like when I'm not over busy. I'm not overtired. I'm not overworked or, you know, burnt out. And then now that the world has been opening up again, I feel like everyone's jamming so much in their calendar, I feel like, and and they're not used to it. So it feels even maybe harder or worse than it was before. (laughs) And again, you know, affecting our stress levels. But I want to ask you a little bit, uh, this is kind of a little bit of a shift. It's still talking about mental wellness and and pregnancy wellness. Um, When it comes to someone who I, I want to talk about advanced maternal age. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, both, both of my children were born when I was at advanced maternal age. So I, I had, I never, I don't know what it's like to not be at advanced yeah. maternal age being pregnant. You know, that was just me. And I'm at the age where I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I wish I could have more babies. I wish I was younger so I could have more babies, but at this age, just with some other health factors and, you know, uh, you know, risk factors and things like that, I don't think it's in the cards for me to have any more. Yeah. Um, but it breaks my heart. You know, and it affects it affects my mental wellness because, you know, I don't know if it's the fear or if it's like you said, the statistics and the numbers, whatever it is, you know, what do you suggest to people who are like maybe like myself who are in their early 40s and thinking, I don't I don't know if I want to have another baby because there's so many risks out there or I'm so terrified of all the things that are that could happen, Um, you know, but like I said, it, it affects my mental health because to admit that I can't have any more children breaks my heart. 
you know, yeah, so here's the, here's the thing. One, I think that, you know, the fear is understandable, right? Because we care. We we care about our own health and we care about the health of our children. We we worry about pregnancy loss. It's very, very understandable. And I don't think it's wrong to have some fear going into any pregnancy or considering trying to conceive again at any point. The the reality is, is that the the majority of pregnancies that are advanced maternal age without other you know medical problems are healthy and mm-hmm. you know we see the term high risk and high risk you know I, I think to a person who is not an OBGYN sounds like oh the risks are really high this is I'm going to have one of these complications right which is why I don't like the term high risk I think that you know high risk what I hear like high risk is not a term that has a lot of meaning to me as a physician because I need more detail than that like people say they're high risk all of the time but to a patient, that carries a lot of weight. So I like to tell people, don't think that you're high risk. Don't worry about that label. Think, I have a pregnancy that warrants increased monitoring. You just, mm. you are, you are truthfully, you're just slightly more likely to have some of these complications. So we're going to be careful with you, as we should. But you are more likely not to have these complications than to have them. The majority of the pregnancies that I've cared for for people in their late 30s and early 40s have been completely healthy. Okay. So yes, there are increased risks, but if you think about, you know, the increased risk of chromosomal abnormalities, does it go up after 35? Certainly it actually goes up every single year. Right. Right. And the, this 35 mark is a, you know, we have, we, we have to draw the line somewhere, right? Who's going to get the extra monitoring? Who's not. And we draw the line at 35 a lot of the times. Um, and some, for some of the things we draw the line at 40, and, you know, we monitor those pregnancies more carefully. The overall risk, risks, however, are still not huge. We're still talking about small percentages. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, it's really about what risks you're comfortable with and um, all the other factors that are going on in your life. But, there are a lot of advantages to having your children at an older age, and we never, ever talk about those advantages. We only talk about the medical risks with um, you know, advanced maternal age. Sure. And being exhausted. <laughs> no, I mean, girl, I, yes. <laughs> I would say to myself, goodness, you know, because I have a, a seven and a four year old and I think, gosh, I'm so tired all the time. If I And I see, you know, when I have like a babysitter or someone come, come over to help and they have so much energy and I think, wow, I should have had kids when I was younger because I'm just so tired. But you did. I, I, I want you to keep going because I know I was I was actually going to go into that because you just posted a few things recently. Um, some actually statistics that I really loved seeing as as an older mom, um, yeah. some of the benefits. So I'll have you share them. And then um, I have a few written down too. Um, but I, I want to make sure the audience hears them. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's actually like really good data that shows that um, parents who are old, like older when they have their children. So, it, you know, they don't, um, that literature doesn't use the same cutoff as like 
as OBGYN literature where we look at 35 plus. But um, a lot of the data shows that if you have a a children 35 or up, you are Um, your children do better in school, they are healthier. And this is controlling for, you know, uh, socioeconomic factors as well. But, um, you know, in addition, you are healthier when you have children (laughs) later on in life. So you're actually, your mortality, um, like you're more likely to live longer, If you have children after 35, which is really interesting stuff. And um, there's some really cool data about, so, you know, I'll back up because I know a lot of people listening aren't going to have a scientific background, but there's these things on our, on our chromosomes called telomeres. And we think that aging is a, that it's really telomere damage to the telomeres as we get older that has something to do with with aging and and it's it's complicated but we actually can see that if you have children um later in life your telomeres are longer than someone who had them when they were younger which is hmm. super interesting stuff like getting really? into the genetics of uh, of this but um yeah it's it's there's some the benefits both for the the you know the pregnant the person who carries the pregnancy um and for the children wow that i i when i saw that i was just i was fa- i'm fascinated by all of that you know the the scientific part of it uh you know so i guess i'm in good shape <laughs> because, <Yeah. laughs> like i said both both my two and only children were both born in and when i was at advanced maternal age um so that's good and 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 just to know that even though i am in my early 40s um my my personal obgyn says the same thing that a lot of the patients that he treats um are you know over 35 for sure but even over 40 oh yeah all the, um, i mean the thing is, is that it, it, it's all the time now. We see it all the time. So that's why I I feel like you know I probably won't be having kids in my forties, but um, I'm I'm very close. But um, I I would not personally wouldn't hesitate. It wouldn't be I wouldn't be worried about it. I mean I I I'm always worried about. It like beyond my baseline level of fear sure. about pregnancy just sure. it can but the reality is is that most of the things that that um like bad things happen in pregnancy all the time and a lot of the time people have no risk factors right so you know i just yeah you, you kind of have to live your life and and be informed by the numbers but also really take into that like that personal intuition um you know I think that's important too. Exactly, exactly. Well, there's there's definitely hope out there for us 40-year-old people who are <laughs> possibly <laughs> considering adding to their family. So thank you for that for that hope and and you know the in the information like you said just to be educated about it and, and and you know talk to your own, you know, personal um, you know, healthcare provider about, you know, those things and you know to move forward but not like you said you have to live your life and you can't live in fear either. I mean, I think the the pandemic is, going back to that has kind of taught us that too. You know, we have to you know, still go out there and live our lives in, in the most safe way we can, you know, kind of thing. Totally. I mean, fear is, fear is useful, right? It's there to protect us. Sure. But you know, it's like, you just, it's about thinking through like, okay, what am I really afraid of here? And, you know, it's really difficult when you're, you know, navigating pregnancy or navigating, trying to decide, there's a lot of fear there, but it's also an opportunity to really get to know yourself and your, your relationship with fear, right? Cause we have, right. we have a relationship with our emotions and, and if we can, 
get to know ourselves and know, um, I think it just helps us navigate these fears and anxieties so much better. Exactly. Yeah, I 100% agree. So let's talk about trying to conceive. Let's go back a little bit and talking about people who are thinking about getting pregnant and, you know, the the, the wellness that goes into that. And and even if they're struggling, you know, if they've been trying for a couple months and now, you know, emotionally they're, you know, feeling, you know, maybe sad about it. Um, feeling a little defeated, you know, they're not getting pregnant as quickly as they thought they were. Um, you know, maybe it's affecting their 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 partner. You know, whatever the case yeah. is, I'm not saying you know we're not going to go on the the full blown infertility side of things. That can be another conversation for another time. But but for just someone who's trying to get pregnant, and um, for for one couple ideas of what you have, just in general, what someone should be doing if they're trying to conceive, and then if they're having some trouble um, and feeling a little defeated, you know, emotionally and mentally, what do you usually do you usually suggest to your your patients? So first and foremost, just to get this out of the way, I want everybody to know that if you are under 35 and you are otherwise healthy, um, we don't do usually intervene or do any um, or give any diagnosis of infertility until one year of trying without conceiving. Okay. Um, if you have other, if you have medical issues, you have an irregular cycle, you have a history of, you know, gonorrhea or chlamydia or some other issue, we intervene earlier. And so it's it's a good idea just to like once you get to that six around that six month mark, even if you're under thirty five, just touching base with your your OBGYN. And they can then say, hey, let's keep trying for a few more months and then we'll put in a referral for or we'll start doing some a workup. And then if you're 35 and up, it's a it's six months. Okay. So um, you know, unless you again have other medical issues, um, and then you may want if you're 35 and up, and you know, you may want to give it a few months. And if you're not pregnant, then you can talk to your OB provider about um, you know, what the next step is. Um, but anyway, so that aside, okay, let's assume there is no diet, there are no, you know, medical problems that are that that you know of, and you haven't reached the one year mark for under 35 or six month mark for for 35. So there's a few things. Um, one, really understanding that the second that you just you start trying to conceive, you're beginning a reproductive journey. And it is, there are many, many different paths that get you to baby at the end. And sometimes the straight, you know, a straight line, you, you know, you try to conceive, you get pregnant in a few months and a a baby ends up on the other side, but there are so many curves in the road that come along. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that this is, this is a, a, a journey that you're going on. It's a trip you're going on and you want to not just be prepared, but understand that there, that taking care of yourself is really important as you move through this. And even before you start trying to conceive, understanding that you're you're entering a time that really, even if it works out well, is a time of increased stress and um, increased demands on sure. you. Um, so, you know, making sure that you have a way, like that you are really balancing the activities and time you spend that are draining your energy and with the things that are filling you up and and um that are good for your mental health and that are good for your wellness 
we are so, you know, we are so conditioned by our culture and by our society that good and successful means being productive, getting things done, having a life that looks a certain way. And most of the time, the activities, those productive activities, those activities that we're trying to, you know, achieve the next goal or get to the next status level are really draining for us and very stressful. When you think of career, when you think of, you know, just, (laughs) you know, so many of us equate a good day to a day that we were able to get a lot of stuff done. So, and that can get really, really ramped up when somebody's trying to conceive, right? So they want to do everything right. They want to take the right prenatal. They want to do the right exercises. They want to check all of the boxes, but sometimes that desire to do everything right and and to you know make sure that they're optimizing their chances of getting pregnant sometimes that can backfire and really create a very stressful situation for an individual and a couple okay mm-hmm. because then when a pregnancy isn't achieved and you've been doing all the things and and you're working so hard it becomes oh my gosh i have i have failed this I'm doing everything that I was supposed to do and it didn't work, right? Right. And it can set up um you know, it can just be really challenging for people like the 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 negative pregnancy test, right? That 2 week wait after you you, mm-hmm. you have sex when you're supposed to and then the 2 week wait and then the negative pregnancy test and it can be very defeating and um it can feel like a failure. So I you know, while I'm, I'm always happy to give people tips for trying to conceive, I think that the most important thing is that we, we try to, um, understand that there's so much more going on in this process and that we have, sometimes we get so focused on the positive pregnancy test and on the outcome that we miss how much we're putting ourselves through in the moment. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm really big on, on stress reduction and mindfulness practices because the trying to conceive and pregnancy and all of it can become um, really, really stressful and overwhelming for people. Yes. And from personal experience, um, it, it, it is, it can be, you know, it is. I mean, I remember waking up every morning and trying not to move so I could take my temperature to see, yeah. you know, where I was at in my cycle. And then I bought the little ovulation kits and then, you know, I, it's, it was the whole nine yards. Um, and even when I decided to try and go kind of the mindfulness route and try some hypnobirthing, you know, yeah. and taking classes and listening to the the audio tapes and the, you know, but that almost became a little bit of a, I won't say a chore, but it became like I had to, you know, listen to a certain amount per night and, you know, it became, yeah, totally. you know, more methodical <laughs> than it was relaxing. <laughs> so, yeah, um, 100%. I mean, you can, you can truly make anything into your to-do list and about sure. productivity, right? Sure. Um, But I mean, but yes, I mean, I think just, you know, and it's funny because I've heard, and I'm sure you have too, you know, so many people that have told me, you know, well, once I kind of really stopped trying, it happened, you know, because you're trying, trying, trying so hard. And like you said, you're, I'm sure the cortisol levels are so high, you know, there's stress hormone and just, you know, like you said, it's just, um, it can become so stressful trying to get pregnant that when you just kind of let go, that's when things start happening, you know? So starting in that, with ma- that mentality, I think, um, is, is successful, like in this like for overall wellness as well. Yeah. And I just think that people need to like, 
you know, it, it can be really hard when you make, when you start trying to conceive and then everything is about that, right? Yes. And because the reality is, is that, that if you do experience infertility, then really truly everything is about that. It's very hard for somebody who is dealing with infertility, going through infertility treatments, it becomes their whole life and it's very, very exhausting. So, and I don't, you know, I'm not saying that people with infertility, it's me saying don't make it your whole life is like ridiculous, right? It's like, um, I'm doing injections all the time. Like I'm getting my labs all the time. I'm having ultrasound. That is, that is like ridiculous advice. You know, I mean, I think there's ways to, to help support people and and not making their whole life infertility. But I think that that's really, um, very superficial advice for somebody who's going through it. So what I'm saying is, is if, if you're not going, if you don't have infertility and you're not going through infertility treatments, trying to just like ease, ease up on having that be the really the only thing you're thinking about um, and trying to keep your life rich in other ways, I think can be really helpful. Yes. No, I, I agree. And I mean, just like I said, going from personal experience, I, you know, wish I would have, the, the first time was, was not a problem for me, you know? So that yeah. seemed like, oh, this is the way it should be. You know, you kind of think this, the, the logical steps of how you're supposed to, you know, get pregnant. But the second time, and again, again, we can save that for another, another episode. But the second time I did, I struggled I and mean, I was older, you know, a little bit yeah. older the second time around, but I struggled with secondary infertility for uh, about a year and a half and it yeah. did become my life. And it, it affected my marriage and it affected my, my firstborn. And it just, it was, it was a very hard. So again, not, you know, that's not what the episode's about today, but I I would like to bring that up at some point, whether, you know, it's you or, you know, um, an infertility specialist that, that focus on, focuses on that all the time um, because it is obviously a prominent struggle that, you know, um, people are having out there, but I know we're almost out of time. I have two more quick questions. I want to just ask you, um, we've talked about, you know, trying to conceive. We've talked about pregnancy wellness when you when you are pregnant. I want to talk about stress during labor. Yeah. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of going back to the fear and the stress about, especially if you're whether you're a first time or maybe even second or third time mom. But you know, whoever's you know having the baby, you know, what what do you suggest for people to go into labor? You know, less as at least hopefully as less stressed as possible. What are your tips for that? Completely. So first and foremost, I really, I, I do not ascribe to the like, no, like the anti-fear, like fear is bad for birth. Um, I think, I think that obviously a certain level of fear can be counterproductive in birth, but (laughs) um, birth is, of course, people are afraid of birth. I'm afraid of birth. And like, but I'm also very comfortable with it. You know what I mean? Like right. it's any time we do something big as human beings, like give birth to another human being, fear is going to show up. Fear shows up when we do anything important, right? Or anything new. So I think that, um, again, turning towards fear and saying, hey, of course you're here, right? Like <laughs> this right. matters to me. I, I care about having a good birth experience. I care about the outcomes. So I, I think that fear gets a bad rap in birth. I think that certainly, I think that when we try to avert fear, and I mean, this is like, you know, I'm not going to get into the neuroscience of it, but when we try to turn away from emotions and, and when we try to turn away from fear, 
it's actually can be really counterproductive, right? So I think turning towards fear and turning towards anxieties about birth and not trying to push them away and not telling yourself that you shouldn't be afraid or you shouldn't be worried about it is a really great place to start. Um, In addition, I think that, and this is something that I've seen a lot with people, with members inside my community, that really talking through the possibilities of what might happen if things don't go according to plan. Like, I know that there's a lot of people out there in the birth world who are all about like, you know, don't think about the bad things, just try to focus on the positive and try to manifest that. And I think that that kind of putting your blinders on to the reality of what can sometimes happen in birth can actually add to people's trauma. Mm -hmm. So it was really wonderful. Somebody in our community just gave birth and it was her first baby. And she went in and it was actually, she was progressing really quickly. And there was a moment when they thought that they might not, that the baby might not be able to handle pushing, like the heart rate was going down and they might need to go for a surgical delivery. And she had, you know, I have content inside my membership all about like what happens, what, you know, what happens when there's issues with baby's heart rate and labor, what happens during an emergency C-section. And she was like, you know, actually knowing, having walked through these possibilities, she, she was like, I felt really at peace with knowing that, okay, if something, if this is going down that road, I know what's going to happen next. It's not going to be completely out of the blue. So I think that, you know, being empowered with knowledge about what the different things that can happen to you in labor, I think that can be really helpful. And I don't think that, you know, um, I don't think that in the end that it increases fear and anxiety to know these possibilities and to understand, you know, I really like to explain to people what it can feel like when there's an emergency situation in labor, because oftentimes your healthcare providers are going to have a, they're going to be going through a fight or flight situation. So when, even though our, as a healthcare provider, even though your life is not threatened, you are responsible for someone's life who is endangered. And so you have a huge rush of adrenaline, you go into fight or flight. And so your, uh, your experience narrows. And it's really wonderful that that happens because we become hyper-focused on the problem Mm -hmm. and the solutions. But what gets turned off sometimes is our empathy and our ability to connect with the patient. And so what can what can sometimes happen is the person who's experiencing is in labor and is experiencing the emergency feels like they're not in the room because nobody's really paying it, like looking in their eyes and paying attention to them. We always, you know, I always try it as a, a healthcare provider and certainly most do, and the, the nurses uh, certainly do try to take a breath and actually make that human connection and explain what's going on. But we're, you know, that's just a moment out of a, a series of events. So it can feel like your healthcare providers become robots, right? And they're like, am I even here? Like nobody's looking at me. They're rushing around. They're not, they're saying things that I don't understand. And so having some awareness that that that's what the situation looks like when there's an emergency, I think can be really helpful for people. Yeah, I I agree. And I, I wish I had had this conversation years ago when I was first going through um, my first labor with my, my firstborn. I was in labor for about 36 hours. I mean, contractions with, you know, very close, you know, together. And my body never dilated. It just yeah. never, it just never did. And I 
you know, they even gave me the epidural. I was, you know, I'd slept through the night and they tried to get in the next morning, still nothing. My body just wasn't, wasn't working in that moment for that particular, you know, reason. And so I ended up having a belly birth. And I remember just going through this phase of feeling a lot of guilt, you know, yeah. a lot of shame. My body, my body failed me, you know, uh, and, and for me, who identifies as a woman, you know, uh, as a woman, I felt like my body, but that's, that, that's what it's meant to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's meant to birth yeah. children and it didn't do it. Something's wrong with me. And I felt, yeah, and I had planned for this natural birth. I'd had a doula yeah. with me. I mean, I didn't even consider C-section, you know. So many people don't. Yeah. And so many people don't, you know, even though my mom had all three of us C-section, you know, but it just didn't even, I thought that's not who's what I'm going to do. And, um, so like I said, I, I, I I don't know if it was a physical part of my body that didn't do that. Was it maybe my heightened stress about being in labor? I don't know what. But You're not the only person going. So the thing about labor is, is it's not just a you thing. It's a you and baby or babies thing. So the 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 reality is is that we don't actually know we there we know we don't know as much about labor as I wish we did, but the baby is very much involved in the labor process. Okay, you know, so it is you. And what do we what do we know as parents? You cannot control your children. You (laughs) and it starts in labor. So if kiddo doesn't want to get in line and get their head tucked the right way and 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 get into the right position. There's a lot that's going on in terms of like with the placenta, we even think that, you know, what's going on with baby physiologically and the hormones that are going on with baby can also play a role in labor. So it's not just our body. And I think what's so interesting is that, you know, when we're little old ladies, you know, (laughs) however, 50 years from now, if if we're lucky enough to live that long, we're going to know so much more about labor. We're going to know so much more about mental health. And all of these things that we've been blaming ourselves mm. are, are going to turn out that there's a lot going on genetically that we don't have control of. There's a lot going on in terms of you know labor that I think has to do with the baby and the placenta that we don't control. And all this time, of course, because we're women, we've been putting the blame on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's much more complex. It's not just like, if you're relaxed, you're going to, you know, it, it would have worked out, you know? Right. Yeah. And that's good to know. And it's, it's interesting you say that because now when you said that it triggered a memory that when, when my baby was actually being delivered, my OB had said to me, oh, your baby wasn't in aligned. Like, you know, yeah. her, her head wasn't down where it was supposed to be, but we she didn't was know that until. She surgery. was like, no, I'm in this <laughs> position and I'm comfortable well, and I get that your uterus. Yeah. She does take after me and my husband. So she, you know. So that doesn't surprise me. And then my son. So then I try a few years later to, you know, quote unquote, redeem myself because I said, okay, it didn't work out the first time. So the second time, like I said, I did hypnobirthing. I hired another doula. I went through all these classes and I said, I'm going to have a VBAC like this. That was determined to have a, you know, a vaginal birth because I was just, I had to have that experience to me as a woman, like it just had to happen and didn't work second time around didn't dilate again. It was the same sort of thing. And then I ended up realizing that he definitely wasn't in the right position. Um, And so I had a a second belly birth and I was much more forgiving of myself the second time. And it was, um, it was almost really relieving to me to kind of give myself grace and forgive myself. And, you know, but I just know how isolating it did feel 
especially the first time and a little bit the second time too, thinking, gosh, here we go again. It's not, it's still not going to work. Um, a feeling, like I said, that, that guilt that I know will probably, like you said, I'm not the only one that's experienced. Oh my gosh. It's so, so, so common. And it's part of the reason that really some of the birth world really, um, kind of, it kind of pisses me off because I think that it really, sometimes we really exalt this idea of, um, you know, quote unquote, natural birth, I will tell you, and I think that I, I 100% believe I was given this birth experience for a reason. I had my, uh, I had my daughter um, in a basically a no intervention birth in a birth center inside of a hospital. Um, I didn't get an epidural. I didn't even, I didn't realize it until after, but I didn't even have an IV. I labored in a tub. I mean, there was spa music playing. There were like flickering LED lights. It was the birth they show at the birth classes. That's what I wanted. (laughs) Like literally, I mean, it was every single box that I wanted to be checked, girl, it was checked. I had my quote unquote perfect birth. And it was the most traumatizing experience of my life. I still can't talk about it today without getting my heart rate increasing. I cry almost every time I talk about it. It was, um, it is an experience that I'm grateful for because it has really allowed me to, I think, help people through this idea of the perfect birth, that if you get all of these things, that it's going to be a beautiful experience was absolutely not my experience. And there's many other people. Once I've, I've shared that on social media a number of times. And when I shared that, I got flooded with direct messages from people who had these quote unquote, perfect natural births that like me were incredibly traumatized. Hmm. So that's what I, you know, that's why I don't, I hate this idea of really exalting one type of birth and saying, oh, if you have this experience, it's going to be empowering and it's going to be beautiful. You know what? That experience can be empowering and beautiful. Know plenty of people who have had that. Same can happen with a, a belly birth too. So my first thought after I I had a medication free like zero intervention birth essentially was not I feel amazing. I can't believe I just did that. Was that was really foolish, and I spent the first months with my daughter recovering from that trauma and having a nervous system that was just like really primed. So I don't, I I think that any birth can be really beautiful and empowering, but I also think that it can go the other direction, no matter what the individual circumstances are. Sure. Wow. I'm so glad. Thank you for sharing that. I'm, you know, glad that we both had with our firstborns completely opposite experiences, but kind of ended up in the same spot mentally, you know, um, with that trauma. So um, now one last question, and then I want you to share more about what you do, um, you know, outside of what we're talking about today. I mean, well, I guess it's all one and the same, but um, speaking of postpartum, so once the baby's born, that's kind of the last part of this cycle that we're, that I want to talk about today. And I know you've mentioned on social before that, you know, right before you give birth, you end up seeing your OBGYN, you know, sometimes a couple times a week and it's, you're getting constant care. And, and, and then when you postpartum, you don't have your first appointment for six weeks later. What do you suggest to, um, someone who's given birth in that first six weeks to really take care of their mental health and wellness during that time that they're not getting as much care um, from their doctors. Oh my goodness. So yeah. So a lot of people are still doing just one six week appointment. The 
the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists changed their rec- their you know recommendations for what should happen in the postpartum period back in 2018 to include more comprehensive care and to include a some kind of um, contact within the first three weeks after birth. Okay. So, so some practices are doing a phone visit um, at, within that time. Some are doing an in-person visit. A lot are still just waiting until that six-week visit. I think that that is woefully inadequate. Um, one visit at six weeks, I think that it's just, I have a lot of problems with it. Um, I think the reality is, is that um, postpartum um, a lot of times is just hard. And we, but we, when we don't talk about how hard it is, we send people in, like people think that they're just going to, it's newborn snuggles and they're going to be so in love and they're going to be so in love with their partner Mm -hmm. once they see their partner, like, you know, holding baby. And it's a lot of, you know, uh, it, it's just, it's portrayed as this like really beautiful experience when in reality for most people it's incredibly challenging i think that i i wish that everybody could have be you know seen by a therapist throughout that period Mm -hmm. and leading up to it um if not a therapist then a you know a postpartum support group or just having some community some place where you can share what you're going through you know inside our um the Sterling Parents Membership, we have a postpartum support group that uh, our midwife runs. And it's just like, you know, a lot of the times you can't necessarily fix the things because it's it's time. It's newborns are hard a lot. Yes. <laughs> are really yes, tough. But it's yeah. just like it can be so isolating and so lonely. And we know that social support, so having you know, having people who are listening to you and caring about you, we know that that's a protective factor for for postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. And so I think that, you know, as much as you can, um, setting boundaries with the people before postpartum that are that are not beneficial to your emotional wellness and your mental health. We all have those people, right? And um, then surrounding yourself with the people that are really going to to support you and carry you through this season. And some of us are lucky and we have all these people in our lives. And some of us, you know, we all, it's, you know, we live in a different city than our families and, and, or we're new to a city. I was new to where I lived when it was Celeste. And so that's where um, communities like mine can really help add that extra level of support because you can access it no matter where you live. And we do, you know, it's Zoom, so it's not in person, but it's face-to-face contact with other human beings that care about you and support you. And I think that we've we've learned that during this pandemic that, you know, that human contact is really, really essential. Yes. Oh, gosh. I'm so glad you mentioned everything. I feel like you I, like as you were talking, I was thinking the exact same things, you know, of just how isolating and, and, and lonely it can be and how strong, you know, having support community, you know, all of those things are. So I'm glad you mentioned. I know you've mentioned also a few times about um, Sterling Parents. I know you left your practice in 2019. Yeah. Start it. So can you tell us more about, um, you know, what Sterling Parents is and the membership and how people can join a little bit more about what they would get from their membership? 
Yeah, so basically Sterling Parents is a membership that most people join either when they're trying to conceive or when they're pregnant. And it has a ton of, you know, educational content so that, you know, every question you have about pregnancy, um, there's either a video on it, we have, you know, a Q&A on it. So it's basically, it's, it's like a pregnancy um, class and book all loaded onto a membership site. And that that allows people to really stay away from Google and to have one source for really that tr- those trusted answers and that expert advice. And then in addition, we really believe in supporting the emotional journey and an individual's development as a parent from the beginning of the reproductive journey. So I, I remember when I was pregnant with my first, I was looking for a book about like, okay, I'm going to become a mother. Like I want to be a good mom. There must be something that I can read or something that I can learn that talks about what are the skills that are really important for parents, right? I, and (laughs) I, I didn't find it. And truthfully, the skills that really worked well for me pre kids, my determination, my work ethic, my goal orientation, those things actually were very unhelpful to me when I became a parent. It really actually made it more difficult um, because kids are not things to be achieved. And, and, you know, so I created this, um, this framework um, for the skills that, you know, are really important for parents to have and just human beings to have. And then I've invited experts on these different skills. We have nine skills that we teach inside the community. I've invited experts on these different skills and we, we help people develop these skills that are important as they move through their reproductive journey, but are also really important as parents. Wow. I, I mean, I love it. I, I mean, I think it's amazing what you've created and how many people you're helping, you know, with it. And it's just, I, I think it's incredible. I'm, I, I love it. So thank where, you. Thank where, you. Yes, of course. Where can people find you to sign up for the membership or just to find more if they have more questions and want to follow along with you? Yeah, of course. So first of all, you know, if you want to get to know me more, I spend a lot, I spend most of my time on Instagram. So I'm at Dr. Sterling OBGYN and that's Sterling like Sterling Silver. And then my membership is Sterling Parents and it's just sterlingparents.com. And so you can learn more about the membership there. Wonderful. Well, again, Dr. Sterling, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, I, I know it's it's not only helped me just having this conversation with you. I know it's going to help so many people out there uh, for all the stages of before they get pregnant to you know past postpartum. So thank you so much for your expertise and your wisdom and your compassion um, for pregnancy wellness and, and being on the show today. Of course, this was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist Podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.